This is the Green Street News, the environmental health radio show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it can impact your life. Welcome back. When we get sick, it's almost always a combination of things that go wrong. Doctors tend to focus on the most obvious potential cause, but there may be other factors at work, especially environmental exposures that many physicians may not be aware of. Two of those factors, radiofrequency radiation and toxic mold, are rampant in our world and they're both getting worse. How is that impacting your life and your health? That story and Patty with the Week's Headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, what's in the news this week about environmental health? Well, the New York Times has done this great series on water, and this week it's about how the Wall Street company behind Poland Spring gets rid of laws it doesn't like. They get rid of the laws? How do they do that? When Maine lawmakers tried to rein in large-scale access to the state's fresh water this year, the effort initially gained momentum. The state had just emerged from drought, and many Mainers were sympathetic to protecting their snow-fed lakes and streams. Then a Wall Street-backed giant called Blue Triton stepped in. Blue Triton isn't a household name, but its products are. Americans today buy more bottled water than any other packaged drink, and Blue Triton owns many of the nation's biggest brands, including Poland Spring, which is named after a natural spring in Maine that is no longer commercially viable. So the water doesn't come from Poland Spring anymore? Oh no, they used it all up. Maine's bill threatened Blue Triton's access to the groundwater it bottles and sells. The legislation had already gotten a majority vote on the committee and was headed toward the full legislature when a lobbyist for Blue Triton proposed an amendment that would gut the entire bill. Quote, strike everything, starts the proposed amendment, which was written in a Word document that contained a digital signature showing that it had been created by Elizabeth M. Frazier, who represents Blue Triton and is one of the most influential lobbyists in Maine. The committee pulled the bill back. Wow. Quote, we couldn't believe it. Their amendment strikes the entire bill, said Christopher Kessler, a Democratic state representative who represents South Portland and a committee member who had voted to advance the bill. Because all this happened behind closed doors, the public doesn't know that Poland Springs stalled the process. Strike everything. I love it. Just get rid of the whole bill. That was their amendment to get rid of that the whole bill. While the bottled water business doesn't use nearly as much groundwater as the nation's thirstiest industries like agriculture, the pressure on bottlers is building as awareness grows of the stress that intensive pumping can place on local water supplies. Many of the aquifers that supply 90% of the nation's water systems are being severely depleted as overuse and global warming transform fragile ecosystems. You know, I, w- I just wonder why people continue to buy bottled water when you can get a you know a reasonably good home filter and you could get a water container. A reusable water reusable bottle. Reusable water bottle. And, uh, you that know. That should be the standard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they could save a lot of money. And that's a tremendous amount of plastic that would not have to be manufactured and then disposed of somehow. Right. Blue Triton is also fighting for access to water sources in numerous other states, including Michigan, Colorado, and others. Maine's bill seeks, among other things, to put a seven-year limit on contracts for large-scale freshwater pumping by corporations that ship water 
out of Maine and to make the deals subject to local approval. That would block Blue Triton's current efforts to lock in contracts for up to 45 years for pumping water. Wow. It's hard to believe that this goes on. This is a very sad story, really, to take water that's been there for millions and millions and millions and of years. And that serves the public in the, that region. Yeah, and now they deplete the aquifers, and now there's no more water for people to drink. They have to go buy it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The sense is that people are making money from it. Who that's are, what makes sense. Who ever heard of Blue Triton? You ever heard uh, that name before? No, no. We've been around the environmental business for a long time. Never heard that word before. Never Blue heard that Triton company name. Blue Triton isn't a household name. No. But its products are. And yet they have the power to undo legislation that is that the majority of the legislature wants to pass. Uh-huh. Capitalism at work. Okay, what else you got? Our friend Christina Marusic, the writer for Environmental Health News, had an op-ed last month in The Hill. Yeah, that's the the Washington, D.C. magazine that every member of Congress reads. What did she write about? Cancer is on the rise among millennials and young people. Since health officials began collecting data in the 1970s, charts tracking cancer in children and young adults are distressingly uniform, with diagonal lines steadily climbing upward. In the U.S., rates of childhood leukemia, the most common type of childhood cancer, increased 35% from 1975 to 2019. Childhood brain cancer rose by 33%. Today, one in 285 Americans are diagnosed with cancer before their 20th birthday. Cancer is the leading cause of death by disease. These increases are too rapid to result from genetic changes, which happen over centuries, not decades. Nor are they clearly the result of better diagnostic tools. The tools for diagnosing childhood leukemia, for example, have remained unchanged since the 1970s. And smoking and drinking, of course, cannot explain the increase in childhood cancers. This is a real rapid increase in childhood cancer rates. If it's not a result of genes or behavior, it's likely caused by something in the environment. And one thing in our shared environment has changed substantially during the same period. The number of manufactured chemicals we're exposed to on a daily basis. In the last 100 years, more than 300,000 new manufactured chemicals have been invented. Many of these chemicals have improved our lives. Disinfectants bring safe drinking water to millions and reduce deaths from dysentery, for example. But we also know that manufactured chemicals can cause great harm. Agent Orange had brutal effects that have spanned multiple generations. Chlorofluorocarbons nearly destroyed the ozone layer before being phased out. Most new chemicals are not even tested for safety, and fewer than 20% are evaluated for their potential to harm fetuses, infants, and children. And even when chemicals are tested and found to be dangerous, they generally stay on the market, at least in the U.S. The World Health Organization has identified at least 100 manufactured chemicals that can cause cancer in humans, but only five have been removed from U.S. markets in the last 50 years. That's one chemical every decade. And how many chemicals did you say there were? 100 manufactured chemicals that the World Health Organization has identified that can cause cancer. You know, those statistics that you read are really quite alarming the Mm -hmm. increase in cancer. And of course, you know, every city now has its own children's cancer center and its own hospital. You see these brand new hospital wings going up, the such and such children's cancer center. This is an obviously an epidemic. We're not paying attention to it. 
it's devastating for these families. You see the ads on TV, please give us money for children's cancer to help these poor families dealing with, with young ones, two and three and four year olds that have cancer. Chemicals get into our bodies through our air, water, and food, and by being absorbed through our skin. Several hundred are found in the bodies of almost every person on Earth, including infants and children. Many are carcinogens or endocrine disruptors, which interfere with hormonal processes in ways that increase cancer risk. A growing body of research suggests that even very small doses of many chemicals increase our health risks in big ways. But children with their smaller bodies are especially vulnerable to this constant barrage of chemicals. But even scarier, and this is really true, research has shown that parents, grandparents, and even great-grandparents' chemical exposures can increase a child's risk of disease. So we're talking about generations after an exposure takes place, a cancer may develop. Yeah. You would think that the parents of children with cancer would really kind of rise up and raise some alarm bells about this. But I don't hear too much complaining about it. I mean, we talk about it. A few other shows, a few other shows talk about it, but mostly the public is oblivious to it. Right. An estimated 90 to 95 percent of all cancers are caused by preventable factors, but only seven to nine percent of all cancer funding goes toward prevention. Pursuing new cures and treatments is critical, but we should be doing much more to prevent cancer in the first place. Yeah. So, all right. Thank yeah, you. Thank that's... you, Christina. Thank you, Christina Marisic. Good article. Okay. You got another one? Yeah, I have one more. This is a California governor vetoes bill that would require microplastic filters on washing machines. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. We all know that the filters is really an important thing in terms of stopping these microplastics. Why would he say no? California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed Assembly Bill 1628, which would have required plastic microfiber filters on new residential washing machines sold in the state by 2029. The bill passed the California legislature would have prevented millions of pounds each year of one of the most pernicious forms of microplastic pollution. That's six years from now. Six years? But he already vetoed this bill. Newsom, in a brief letter, said that while he takes microfiber contamination seriously, he is concerned that the bill would increase cost to consumers in advance of further research being completed and establishing the public policy rationale and details for new residential requirements. Advocates disputed this claim, saying that evidence-based scientific and economic research underpinned the bill. Sure. Hello. An economic study commissioned by Ocean Conservancy, for example, found that the filters would have increased the price tag of washing machines by 14 to $20, or about $2 per year over a machine's average lifespan. Two bucks a year, that's less than a latte. Yeah, I think, we, I think people could afford that. A single load of laundry can release millions of minuscule plastic strands ranging in length from the size of a sesame seed down to a single bacterium. About two million tons of plastic microfibers enter the ocean each year. Next to wear and tear from tires, which is number one, laundering of synthetic textiles is the biggest source of microplastic pollution in the ocean, according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I would think that California would be out front on this issue. Yeah. Not I mean, with all the research that they've done, they showed that using these filters in washing machines can actually achieve up to 40% reduction in microplastics. Yeah. Yeah. But 
a water treatment plant can actually capture about 99% of microplastics, but what happens if you just capture it in the, in the water treatment plants? It doesn't prevent these fibers from contaminating the environment because that nutrient-rich sludge from the treatment plants, also known as biosolids, is spread on fields as fertilizer, allowing microfibers to enter the air, water, and soil, as well as plant and animal tissue. Sending these thread-like contaminants to landfills is a better solution, as most landfills in the U.S. are engineered to keep their contents contained. Boy, are we screwing up the earth. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. One thing most of us know about medicine is that it only takes a little bit of something to cause big trouble. A tiny germ we can't even see can cause life-threatening illness. A few drops of a toxic chemical in a giant body of water can cause death to someone who takes a sip. A little moisture inside our homes can cause toxic mold to invade our living spaces. And a tiny bit of radiation from our cell phones, tablets, or baby monitors can cause all manner of physical problems. Over the centuries, the human body has developed an amazing ability to keep us safe and well, to protect us from most natural elements and exposures. Given optimal health, our bodies can deal with most things that come at us during our lifetimes. But humans haven't had enough time, enough centuries, to develop ways of coping with many of the environmental exposures we have today in our modern lives. Synthetic chemicals in the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, and the products we buy can confuse our bodies and cause all kinds of trouble. And so can powerful electromagnetic fields that don't exist in the natural world and the radiation that comes from our wireless networks and devices. Of course, you can't see or smell or touch EMFs, as they're called, so we don't think about them that much. But that doesn't mean they're not having an effect on each of us. EMFs really do affect everyone. And the only way that you can have an understanding of that is when that person is given an opportunity to lower their exposure, particularly if they can lower their exposure at night while they sleep in their bedroom. That, that makes a huge difference. That's Dr. Sharon Goldberg, an integrative and functional medicine physician who specializes in helping to identify reversible causes of disease. Dr. Goldberg spent over a decade working in acute care internal medicine in New York City and Miami. During that period, she helped train hundreds of medical students and residents as a hospital medicine physician. She's an expert in clinical electromagnetics and the diagnosis and treatment of EMF-associated illness, including electromagnetic sensitivity, or EMS. I finished medical school in the late 90s, and when I started working in internal medicine, the internal medicine wards were, it was geriatrics. We, we had very few young people admitted to internal medicine wards. The few people that we had, you know, it was very clear why they were there. Like we had a lot of AIDS patients. We had, if someone had kidney failure and they were on dialysis at a young age, lupus and things like that. But we didn't have people who were just sick by like they were, they had multiple diagnoses and, and they were young and just for no reason. As the years went by, you had younger and younger people who just were getting sicker and sicker at a young age. And by sicker, I mean typical sort of cardiometabolic types of problems like diabetes, stroke or heart attacks. 
things like that. And we were just seeing at younger, younger ages and on more and more medications. And this was another thing that just always sort of bothered me because, because genes don't change in, you know, over a period of 10 years, but the environment does. So I was always, you know, thinking, okay, well, what's going on? Why are people getting sicker and sicker at a younger age? And it's not like I didn't have the answer, but I was interested in, in environmental factors, you know, environment toxins and, and other, you know, just other environmental factors. Why, why would this be happening? The Institute for Functional Medicine was offering a pilot program to train a medical school faculty in functional medicine, which is a type of integrative medicine. So I was able to enroll in this class and along with a group, and there were some medical students too, we got this incredible training in functional medicine over a period of a few years. And so functional medicine teaches you a lot about root causes of disease and mechanisms of disease. So that was a wonderful thing that happened to help, uh, you know, to get that functional medicine education at that time when every year it seemed like the population, our admissions, they were just getting sicker and sicker. It was about that time that Dr. Goldberg had her own experience with cell phone radiation and its potential impact on the body. It was time for me to upgrade the phone and I wanted an iPhone. I had had a Blackberry at the time and, and the residents were laughing at me when we went around because I, I couldn't use their apps, the medical apps. So, so my administrator got me a new iPhone and I brought it home and I had a conference call that I had to do. It was, it was about a 30 minute conference call that I did on speaker from this new phone which I loved by the way. And by the end of the call, my finger felt like it was on fire. <laughs> like I literally had a finger, like a, you know, like a diabetics neuropathic toe and it didn't go away for four or five days. So that night I immediately, I started researching cell phone radiation because I was like, what just this, I can't believe this, this, what happened to my finger? So, so that was when I, I started to learn about the effects of non-ionizing radiation and that actually we had been told that it's so safe, yada, yada, and it wasn't true at all. And a lot of these chronic medical issues that we were seeing in the hospital and that, that I was actually teaching residents about when we rounded, that there were actually connections to microwave radiation, which was a big shock for me. We all live in a wireless world, and we're receiving more and more exposure to RF radiation every day, from antennas on the street to smart meters, smart appliances, smart doorbells, powerful routers, and all manner of personal devices, from tablets to game consoles to our beloved cell phones. Everyone's house is usually full of RF radiation. So I have a general integrative medicine practice. So I see a lot, a lot of patients just come to me for integrative and functional medicine. They don't really know, they don't know about my EMF work. Then I have another uh, sort of subset of patients who, who come to me specifically because they've become reactive to electromagnetic fields. They have EHS, microwave syndrome, uh, whatever you want to call it. There are very few people left that don't have a house full of stuff that emits microwaves. I, I mean, there are a few holdouts, but for the most part, people, this is this is the way people live. This is, we get our internet through Wi-Fi, not through a hardwired connection. People are now dependent on cell phones. They've, you know, they've kind of given up their landlines, many people. This is more the norm rather than the exception. 
When I bought my first meter, after I did the research, after the finger incident, that was when I had the, the realization that, oh, wow. Like, so like many people, I think I was sure I'd heard about smart meters, but I didn't really, I guess I, I thought, well, there's no way there could be a smart meter on my house because no one ever asked me. So I had that meter and I was measuring around my house in Florida. And I realized that, yes, we indeed did have a smart meter. And yes, it was very close to uh, my daughter's bedroom on the other side of the wall. And it was pulsing, you know, it was pulsing most of the house. And so I learned that that was a shock. And then just start, when you start to measure the things in your own home, it really is eye opening. The things that I saw once I started doing this were just mind blowing because I would get the response from that patient and oh wow their blood pressure got better or something like that but then they say oh and by the way you know I have a child who is autistic and uh, you know they are doing so much better or they're speaking one of the most common things that that I would see is that sort of neuropsychiatric issues in children and EMF exposure, it's a very big deal. And when you lower the exposure in the home, my sense is that a lot of the depression, anxiety, neuropsychiatric issues in children, uh, neurodevelopmental issues in children, if EMF levels are lowered in the homes of these children, their symptoms improve incredibly, significantly. And every child is different and every situation is different. But this is something that I would see very commonly, that parents would notice a difference in their children when the EMF levels in the home were lowered. They would fight less. And another common thing that they would mention is that, that the children were happier, that they didn't have this, they were less angry. You can't guarantee an, an outcome to anyone. And, you know, all humans are, are genetically and biochemically unique and all of the environmental exposures are unique and what they inherit from their, their parents and their grandparents, the epigenetics will also determine an outcome. But, you know, what's for sure is that if a brain is already slightly compromised or a person is, let's say, slightly overloaded with toxins, when you add wireless radiation into the mix, which we know is causes oxidative stress, which is this foundational mechanism of pretty much all chronic disease. So you know that it's going to make the problems worse. So it's not, it's really not rocket science. Our worldwide reliance on wireless devices, on always being connected everywhere we go at all hours of the day and night, is creating a new level of radiation exposure that humans have never experienced before. And it may be having much more of a negative impact on our health than we realize. Because we know that microwave radiation causes oxidative stress and oxidative stress is, you know, is this foundational mechanism in essentially all chronic diseases. That means that lowering EMF exposure could potentially help someone with almost anything. We have good, you know, good evidence going back to the 70s showing that microwave radiation exposure leads to, um, it raises blood sugar and other markers of, uh, of diabetes. So that doesn't mean that, you know, that cell phones cause diabetes, but even let's say because diabetes affects so many different people and because it's such an expensive problem to treat because of the complications that people develop like end stage kidney disease requiring dialysis or neuropathy leading to like uh, limb amputations, because it's so expensive, even if 
let's say while microwaving our entire population would just raise the the blood glucose levels by a small percentage that could be a significant impact on on population health and and economics as dr goldberg learned more about rf radiation and electromagnetic fields she began to understand the potential link between these exposures and other exposures particularly mold it's been known for a while that exposure to toxic mold lowers your threshold to electromagnetic fields. And these people tend to become electrosensitive, not all of them, uh, because mold illness presents a lot like EHS. There are just so many different organ systems affected, and there are different toxins that can cause different presentations. But the bottom line is that if someone has EHS, they need to be tested for mold and they, they should find a mold literate physician in their area or someone they can work with who can do this. You'll hear from people with EHS who, you know, who move out and kind of live in the woods in areas where there's no EMF that they have this idea that they're never going to get over it. So people will move away from the city and live out in the middle of nowhere and not get better. And this situation, these people really need to be tested for mold because many of them with mold toxicity, what happens is let's say you were in the home 10 years ago that exposed you to toxic mold and you moved out. So people think, okay, well, I've moved out of that home, so it's not a problem. Well, that's not true because what can happen in a certain percentage of people is that the toxic mold will actually take up residence in the uh, nasopharynx, in the sinuses, in the gut, and it becomes part of your flora. It just starts living in you and continues to produce the toxin. And another scenario that is very common is that people will move out of a home that had toxic mold in it without their knowing. And when they bring all of their stuff with them, sofas, mattresses, clothing, anything with upholstery, they can't like, they can't be cleaned the proper way. They're bringing the toxin with them. So, so this can be a problem. A toxic mold exposure that happened decades ago can continue to affect someone for those reasons. And this is really a hidden epidemic that we don't, you know, I, I never learned about this in medical school and I'm so thankful that I was able to learn about it now, you know, as a practicing physician, but it is fascinating and it's a treatable cause of disease that I think all physicians should learn about. A lot of people will scoff at it and say, oh no, that's not evidence-based, but it couldn't be further from the truth. It is totally evidence-based. There's a lot of evidence you know, and mold is a, is an immune suppressant. And, you know, when physicians say it's not evidence-based, well, so to give you an example, okra toxin is a mold that produces mycophenolic acid, which we use to make the drug Celsept. I mean, that basically is the drug Celsept that we use as an immune suppressant in, in organ transplants. So these mycotoxins, they're used as weapons. The military has weaponized a few of them. So you can't say that they're not biologically active, Like we know that they are. It's a political issue, you know, because so many homes and offices and public buildings have been, once a building is water damaged, depending on the construction, it will often grow mold. And our newer methods of construction 
are uh, you know things that contain cellulose, and they just the, the toxic molds love to grow on on these materials. So mold toxicity is a very common cause of psychiatric issues, of anxiety, depression, OCD, uh, behavioral changes in children, like sudden behavioral changes. So it's something that that people really should be aware of because it's treatable. It's treatable and it's common. Dr. Sharon Goldberg, integrative and functional medicine physician who specializes in helping to identify reversible causes of disease. You can learn more about Dr. Goldberg and her work at her website, drsharongoldberg.com. That's drsharongoldberg.com. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sharon Goldberg, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 